Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. You've probably met Stagger Lee in a dark bar somewhere, growling from the jukebox. It was back in 32 when times were hard. He had a Colt 45 and a deck of cards. Stagger Lee. Or maybe it was Ike and Tina Turner on a karaoke set. Or maybe it was the classic version recorded by Mississippi John Hurt in 1928. Staggerly is the baddest man in town, as poet and critic Eric McHenry writes in our spring 2021 issue. And he was a real person. Maybe he didn't do all of the things described in the songs we just heard. But the bar, the hat, the gun have become mainstays of African-American folklore. Eric McHenry joins us on the podcast today for a look into the life and legend of Stagger Lee, which he exhumed through newly digitized newspaper records and troves of digital recordings, including the conversation between an elderly St. Louis musician and a 1970s graduate student that plucked Stagger Lee from a rich oral history tradition back into the written record. So thank you so much for talking to me, Eric. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. So you wrote this incredible piece of music history for our most recent issue, The Baddest Man in Town. Um, And I thought, you know, there are a lot of different versions of this story floating around, but you have this line in the piece that says, you know, despite the tendency of folktales to grow taller... Stagalee's story has remained impressively stable over the years. So yeah. what is the core story? Can you tell us in case we've forgotten? Well, the core story in the legend is that a guy named Stagalee, or sometimes uh, Stagalee, or Stackalee, or Stackley, um, shoots a guy named Billy Lyons in a dispute in a saloon over a hat. And he usually shoots him with a forty-four. And Billy Lyons uh, pleads for his life and evokes uh, his wife and kids. 
uh, saying, I have a family, please don't shoot me. But Staggley is a bad man and merciless, and he goes ahead and shoots him anyway. And uh, often their dispute involves gambling, too. Uh, and, and the dispute over the hat takes different forms. Sometimes Billy stole his hat. Sometimes he won it or won it illegitimately. Sometimes he damaged it or broke it or spit in it or something like that. But it's always a dispute over a hat. It's always Staggley versus Billy Lyons in a saloon. And Staggley always shoots him. And this has been going on for <laughs> over a century now. And it really happened, right? Like, this is a true story? Basically, all of that really happened, yeah. In 1895, on Christmas night in 1895 in St. Louis, uh, a guy named Lee Shelton, who was commonly known as Stack Lee, uh, shot a guy named William Lyons in Bill Curtis's saloon in a dispute over a hat <laughs> with a forty-four. And uh, the elements of the legend that didn't seem to um, hold up in the documentary record were this notion that Staggley was a bad man, you know, that Staggley was this terrifying menace of the town, and uh, that Billy Lyons had a wife and kids. He was, researchers discovered, listed as single on his death certificate, and nobody for a long time could find any sort of criminal record for Staggley Shelton. And so those were believed to be just elements of the myth that songwriters and storytellers had added over time. But as I started looking into it, I started seeing that there was real evidence that both of those things were true as well. So why did you start looking into it? What struck you about this song and like, why start digging into this historical <laughs> record? <laughs> For about three or so years, I've been obsessed with recently digitized um, historic archives and especially newspaper archives and what you can unearth there. We're really in a, an unusual moment, I feel like, right now, where just within the past few years, these treasure troves of historic documents have become available online and keyword searchable for the first time. So if you're looking for something in an old newspaper, you no longer have to make yourself motion sick scrolling through miles of microfiche in some library somewhere. You can just enter the name in a box and any time that that name appeared in the newspapers that are in the holdings of whatever archive you're searching in, um, all of those references will come up. And I started researching a variety of things, you know, my own genealogy and specific interests related to my scholarly area. I was looking for information about Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Brooks and other poets I'm interested in who were from the area that I'm from, Northeast Kansas. And uh, I actually found at one point um, references to Langston Hughes uh, from the year before he was born and ended up discovering that Langston Hughes was a year older than anyone had had thought. Um, and that kind of awakened me to the possibilities that these archives presented. And so I'd been interested in the story of, of Stagger Lee and other pieces of American folklore uh, for a long time. And I remembered that there was a historic basis for that legend. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I can look up the original articles about it. And I found tons and tons of articles. Um, and as I started looking farther and farther into it and realizing how frequently Stack Lee was in the papers and Billy Lyons was in the papers and these other players in the story and, and how much of the story was there, um, I, uh, I started noticing, you know, discrepancies bef between what I was seeing in the documentary record and what uh, um, previous researchers who didn't have access to these digital archives had, had concluded. Uh, and that was interesting to me too. And I thought, I wonder how many sort of missing pieces of the puzzle I can potentially try to fill in. So what was the lie? Like what's true? What did you discover? 
Well, it certainly looks to me like Stagg Ali had earned his bad man reputation. You know, <laughs> you know, previous scholars had said, you know, this legend that he's acquired over the years as this heartless, merciless killer. You know, he doesn't have much of a criminal record. He was sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time, it looks like. I mean, he was, you know, a guy that hung out in saloons on Christmas night, so he wasn't exactly maybe the most upstanding citizen of the world, uh, but... Uh, I looked and looked and I thought, well, yeah, no, I mean, here he is arrested for um, assault with intent to kill in 1889. And here he is again, arrested for assault with intent to kill in 1889. And then again in 1890. And then here he is pistol whipping somebody in 1894 and in 1895, earlier that same year. And um, here he is committing a robbery and here he is being called notorious um, and, you know, the newspapers at the time were full of, uh, you know, speculation and hearsay and racism, and it was an education in um, how irresponsible journalism often was back then. So I took everything with a grain of salt, but cumulatively, the impression was, wow, this guy was in a lot of trouble and often for violent acts. And, you know, maybe the legend knew exactly what it was talking about when it said Staggley was a bad man. Um and, uh, you know, the most impressive detail that I found, I mean, jumping ahead a little bit in the story here, but uh, I was so struck by the fact that at the end of his life, Stagley eventually was arrested for this crime, went to prison, and died in 1912 after serving, you know, about 15 years in prison uh, of tuberculosis. And at the time that he died, he had been given a mercy parole by the governor uh, because he was in such poor health, and he never was healthy enough even to leave the prison hospital. He died in the prison hospital, but he had been paroled into the care of his good friend, James D. Anderson, who was a humble junk dealer living in St. Louis. And um, so this was where Stackley Shelton was supposed to spend his final days. And, uh, and he had, this must have been a good friend of his because he had willed all of his possessions to James D. Anderson. That was the only beneficiary in Lee Shelton's will, such as it was. Um, but he died, and so he never went to James D. Anderson's home. But less than a year later, police raided James D. Anderson's home. I found this using the address of that house and discovered this giant um, drug factory, basically like 200 pounds of raw opium, and police called it the largest opium and cocaine distribution plant in the United States or something like that. So so here was the bad man, Lee Shelton, uh, you know, willing his estate to the biggest drug kingpin in St. Louis on his deathbed. It, it seemed like a great bad man parting gesture. I mean, it's wild to me that like this one song and this one feud and these two people have inspired so much like historical speculation for one and also so many legends. Yeah. I mean, you point out that like in 1911, sociologists were already, you know, collecting many versions of this song, right. which for me, like, really raises the question of, like, why this guy? It's not like this was the only shooting in St. Louis or, like, in the country that Hardly. could have been the basis <laughs> for a song. Why him? Yeah, yeah, that's the big question, you know. it. St. Louis at the time was an incredibly violent place for a, a wide variety of reasons, but that Christmas night was infamous in St. Louis for a long time afterwards, even irrespective of the legend, because either five or six or seven other people were murdered in St. Louis that same Christmas night. And that wasn't a typical night, obviously, but that kind of violence was typical of St. Louis at the time. Um, Stackley's killing of Billy Lyons was just a little swib in the next day's newspapers. 
Um, why did it become this larger than life, you know, enduring legend when all these other crimes, you know, faded from memory? And that is a really interesting question. It is not exactly the case that every other crime did fade from memory. There are two other killings that occurred in exactly the same neighborhood at around the same time. I mean, there was even social overlap between the, the people involved in these various killings um, that also became legend. One was uh, the killing of Officer James Brady by Harrison Duncan. Uh, there's a song called Duncan and Brady, a folk song that has persisted well into the 20th century and has been recorded by Lead Belly and Dave Van Ronk. And um, I think Bob Dylan has done a version of it. I mean, on Bob Dylan's latest album, there's a song that concludes with the line, you've been on the job too long, which is the refrain from the song Duncan and Brady, like he's lifted it from that song. Um, that was a killing of a of a white police officer by a black man in a bar in 1890, at the same intersection at which the Stag Lee killing took place. It was at a different bar, you know, across the street. Um, and that entered the folklore. And then just up the street a ways, um, a woman named Frankie Baker killed a guy named Alan Britt in 1899. And that became Frankie and Johnny, uh, which is also, you know, a famous piece of American musical history and folklore. Um, and And all of them were kind of unexceptional killings in a way, right? I mean, you know, all killings, of course, are tragic and exceptional in as much as they're killings, but there was nothing that sort of shouted out, this is instant legend material here. I think St. Louis was a really musical place at the time, and I think that uh, it was very, very common for the news of the day to be kind of instantaneously transformed into song-by-songwriters, and that that may be one of the reasons... Why did Stagger Lee endure? You know, why did it hang around all that time? Um, and I think that the reason is that it's, maybe ironically, because of the simplicity of the story, it has these few elements that make it um, kind of eminently importable into legend. It's a man killing another man in a dispute over a hat, um, which is a seemingly insignificant, you know, thing, but it's very insignificance may be what makes it significant. Um, this is St. Louis in the 1890s. African-Americans faced extraordinary discrimination and social segregation. And boy, to read those old newspapers, you're just beaten over the head with the overt racism constantly. And it's, it's oppressive. You know, the, the memory of, uh, emancipation and all the promise that that offered was fading and, and it's sort of around this time in African-American folklore, as I understand it, I've tried to do as extensive reading on this as I can because it's not my area or expertise. Um, it is around this time that the bad man figure first emerged. Um, there had been other folkloric figures like John Henry or Casey Jones who did these sort of admirable things and seemed worthy of elevating as heroes. But the bad man was offered something different. It was a a black man who took no grief from anybody, tolerated no insults, did exactly what he, what he wanted, didn't care about the consequences, and he would smoke you and leave your children fatherless if uh, you mess with his hat, you know. And the Stetson hat was this kind of, uh, it, it, was, it was never referred to as a Stetson in the old newspaper articles, but the songs have always just been unanimous that it was a Stetson, and fashion would have probably dictated that a, a hat worth shooting someone over at the time would be a, a Stetson, and there's even a little argument in the 
coroner's inquest transcript um, that the witnesses recount about, you know, Billy had a hat and Stagley had busted Billy's hat, but Billy's hat was this cheap little derby, it sounds like, and Billy wanted Stagley to repay him right away. This is what actually happened, according to the coroner's inquest. Billy wanted Stagley to repay him right away, and Stackley said, how much? And Billy said, I want six bits, like 75 cents. And Stackley said, six bits would buy a whole box of that kind of hat, you know? <laughs> but so Billy had taken Stackley's hat as kind of um, collateral, you know, <laughs> until he got reimbursed for his own hat. I like, I'm not going to give you back your hat until you pay me for mine. And Stackley pulled out his gun and said, give me back my hat. And some witnesses, it sounds like, suggested that Billy came at him with his hand in his pocket as though he were brandishing a knife, you know, or something like that. Or not brandishing it, but concealing a knife, but coming at him threateningly. But that is a little bit ambiguous. But in any case, Stackley shot him at that point. Uh, all this is to say, I think the hat is the crucial element. I think that's what lent it the potential to be transformed into a legend, that it was a story with a few pretty simple elements, and one of them is a guy who will not tolerate you taking his hat and will shoot you if you do. The paradigmatic bad man, the, the feared, you don't mess with this black guy, and he's kind of free of all of the societal oppressions that the rest of us experience by virtue of being indifferent to them, you know, by virtue of not caring about the consequence and shooting anybody who got in his way. Uh, one of the old versions of the songs begins, Stagley was a bad man, and everybody knowed when you see Stagley come and you give Stagley the road. <laughs> and that seems to be sort of the essence of the of the legend. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the question of, of badness and of having a bad reputation or being a bad man is a really interesting one that you, like, trace through all the different versions. You know, in some, he's absolutely depraved and in others I think things are a little more ambiguous yeah, yeah. but then you went and threw a, a wrench into the whole thing <laughs> by stumbling across the earliest known lyrics to the song which makes for a really interesting comparison to what it then became over the course of the last hundred years right so how did you find these lyrics and what do they tell us about Lee yeah sort of late in the game you know as really this essay was being prepared for publication, I sort of stumbled upon this really early and apparently full set of lyrics that was printed in the Kansas City Star in 1897, in March of 1897. So 15 months after the crime and before uh, Lee Shelton had even been convicted of the crime, these, these lyrics were in circulation and had already traveled from St. Louis to Kansas City. It was an article called Songs of the Jails and the author was transcribing and reprinting songs just as a piece of sort of, you know, local interest or color, you know, or things like that. Uh, songs that were often sung by inmates in the city jail. Um, and interestingly, an early version of Duncan and Brady was one of them. Um, but there was this complete set of Stackley lyrics. It had been known for a long time that Stackley had become a song almost instantaneously. There's a reference in the Leavenworth Herald from late 1897 to a local pianist uh, playing Stackley. But no actual published lyrics had uh, appeared that predated 1910. And even the versions that folklorists had collected, there were no sort of attested early versions that were earlier than about 1904 or so. And even those, I think, were just sort of like sapphic fragments, you know, of Stagley. So to have a complete set of lyrics from 1897 was sort of, I sat there in 
my basement at like one in the morning looking at my computer screen and just saying holy beep to myself over and over again as I was reading through it and and wondering whether I should wake my wife and children. I wisely decided <laughs> not to. Um, but yeah, that in that early version, it, it complicated considerably my thinking about the song and its origins. Um, I'm not positive that it's absolutely the first version of the song. It may have been just one of many in circulation, but its existence suggests that the Stagalee song may have been born as a prison song, you know, like that may have been where it originated as a song that prisoners would sing to sort of pass the time as they would sing about other crimes to transform other familiar bits of news and gossip into songs that they could sing together to, to pass the time in the sort of work song and field holler tradition. But in that version, two striking things about it are one uh, it reports so many of the details from the crime exactly as they happened. Um, so the person who wrote it um, was really, really familiar with the details of the of the crime, not just because this is so close in time to the time that the crime was committed, but because those details attest to the composer's familiarity with the crime. He mentions a guy named Charlie Mann twice as being Stagalee's companion at the crime scene, and then is with him later when Stagalee is arrested. That actually happened. There was another guy named Charlie Mann who was a friend of Lee Shelton's, who was, according to witnesses, with him both in the saloon at the time of the crime and was with him later when he was uh, found and arrested by the police. That detail, that name, Charlie Mann, has never, as far as I know, appeared in any other version of the song, nor was it ever mentioned in the newspapers. I'm only aware that Charlie Mann was there because I've read the coroner's inquest transcript. And so I've read the initial witness testimony. And then the song, actually the very last lines of the song are like the composer's signature. There's that tradition in in uh, blues and folk songs sometimes that, that a composer will say, if anyone asks you who wrote this song, tell them, and then they'll give their name. And that, that persists in the, into the toast tradition with Stagger Lee. Uh, toasts are sort of proto-rap narratives that were sto told stories not accompanied by music. And uh, Dolomite, uh, Rudy Ray Moore had a famous version of Stagger Lee that he would tell. And at the very end of it, he would say, if anyone asks you who told you this toast, tell them it was Dolomite. Dolomite, the man that's known from coast to coast. Um, and so there's a couplet like that at the end of the 1897 version. It says, if anyone asks you who composed this song, say Wingy, the bachelor, the man with the broken arm. Um, it's an interesting very specific. <laughs> yes, very specific. That's right. Yeah, uh, it will surprise no one who knows me to know that I've been in touch with a reference librarian at uh, the St. Louis Public Library who's trying to help me pour through old records and see if we can identify a a wingy or a a, a broken armed man among the prison population back then, so that we may, maybe can get the original. But the other striking thing about that version is that it's so clear that Staggerly as a legendary figure has not begun to emerge yet. He's not the the bad man, like watch out for Stagger Lee, sort of the badass that you hear about in the the later versions. Nor really is he the bad man in with the word bad being used in a more sort of conventional or unironic sense of the Mississippi John Hurt version, the cruel man. You know, he's a bad man, cruel Stagger Lee. The the this tone of Mississippi John Hurt's song is very sort of censuring or condemning of, of Staggerly. But but he's not a bad man. Sort of in either of those ways, it doesn't seem like. In the 1897 version, it seems like there he's kind of an impetuous dumbass. Like, it seems like he's a guy that just committed a crime without thinking about it. 
and now is really scared that he's facing the consequences, you know? Yeah. I want to play the Mississippi John Hurt version because it centers so much on the word bad, but I was just looking at the lyrics and the word bad does not appear in 1897 at all. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. (laughs) The closest we have is awful crime, but it's like Stackley has done an awful crime, not like Stackley is an awful man. (laughs) Right. That's a really, really great observation. Yeah, yeah. And I was crushed too to see that in the 1897 version, there's also no reference to Billy Lyon's wife and children. I was that would have been sort of the the missing link. Like, look, it was there from the beginning. So, um, but yeah, that's right. It's he's, he's not a bad man even nominally in the 1897 version. So here we go. Police officers. How can it be? You can arrest everybody but cruel Stagley, that bad man. Oh, cruel Stagley. Mr. Lion told Stagley, please don't take my life. I got two little babes and a darling loving wife, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. What I care about your two little babes and darling loving wife, you done stole my stuttering hat, I'm bound to take your life, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. Right, so here, I mean, it's really interesting because we don't have just bad Stagley. We have that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. Right. And you have, I think, you know, the babies and the darling love and wife from Billy to Lion in there. Yeah. Maybe to make him seem badder. Right. It makes sense that, you know, if you're a songwriter taking existing facts, but you're going to add details in order to emphasize a certain aspect of the story, you would give Billy Lyons a wife and kids. Or or you would make Billy Lyons a pitiful guy who would say that he had a wife and kids, whether he did or not, you know, <laughs> in order to appeal to your sense of mercy. I actually, the annotated version has sort of changed my thinking about the whole song in ways that aren't completely reflected in, you know, the essay. But um, there's this familiar couplet through many versions of the song that is actually present in that 1897 version. And it's like, boys, oh boys, what do you think of that? Stagley killed Billy Lyons about an old Stetson hat. And in later versions, that's really a that rhetorical question has a different implied answer. You know, what do you think of that? Stagley killed Billy Lines about a $5 Stetson hat. Like, that's a bad man. Like, you don't mess with that guy. He'll shoot you over something as small as stealing his hat. But it seems like in this 1897 version, the tone is, what do you think of that? About an old Stetson hat. You know, that old is interesting because it's kind of like, it could either mean this is an old raggedy Stetson hat that's not even worth you know, making a fuss over, or it could just be like that dumb old Stetson hat, you know, that, that use of old, but, but in either case, it's kind of diminishing the, the value or the import of the hat. And the tone seems to be suggesting that Lee Shelton was this fool who rashly killed this guy over the most insignificant imaginable thing, immediately got caught. His last companion has abandoned him to the police 
And then later Stackley Stackley's in jail and is complaining to his cellmate, like, I want to go to sleep, but I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble deep. You know, he's fearing the eventual consequences of all of this. Um, and the last lines are, Stackley, can't you see that it's murder in the first degree? Oh, how I wonder what they'll do when Stackley has his trial through. So the, the song is sort of expressing that uncertainty and maybe even a little bit of sympathy for its dumbass friend, poor Staggerly, <laughs> who did all these things. Right. Well, and you talk about how this line here in the Mississippi John Hurt version, police officer, how can it be? You can rest everybody, but cruel Staggerly really speaks to kind of the racism of the period that like black victims just were not given the time of day. Yeah. It's surprising that, you know, at the time a black guy could get away with acts of violence, um, you know, in light of the fact that there was so much racism and so much eagerness to lock black people up and, and so much indifference to the actual justice process and, you know, all of the, the horrors of American history that with which we're all acquainted. But the flip side of that was, yeah, as you mentioned, um, I mean, Lee Shelton, I think, was able to get away with a lot for a long time because his victims were mostly black. You know, he was assaulting or robbing um, people who had no social power whatsoever and uh, for whom the authorities weren't especially concerned. And probably the reason that he was finally put on trial and convicted, um, I mean, it had to do with the fact that he actually killed someone, of course, but the person that he killed, Billy Lyons, was uh, from a really powerful family. He himself was not super powerful, but his brother-in-law was... um, by some accounts, the most wealthy black man in St. Louis. He was the owner of several saloons. He was politically influential at the time as well. Henry Bridgewater was his name. Um, And so, uh, you know, there was some high-powered lawyers coming after Stackley Shelton at that that point. Um, But yeah, the the racism of the time um, may have contributed to Stackley's ability to get away with so much for so long, which may in turn have informed Mississippi John Hurt's version and who knows where he adapted it from, which begins with his memorable first line, you know, police officer, how can it be? You can arrest everybody, but cruel Stackley. Yeah. Let's listen to the second half of the song, because I think that turn that you were talking about of, you know, the gesture like boys in right. the 1897 here becomes gentlemen's of the jury. So. Of the jury. Oh. Here it is. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of differences, I think, in the end of that song versus the 1897 lyrics. Yeah. Thinking about it now, listening to it, I feel like he's beginning, although Mississippi John Hurt's version is, I think, focuses on 
bad Stagli as cruel Stagli, you know, bad in an unambiguously negative light. I feel like you can see toward the end of that song, the beginnings or like the sort of inchoate version of Staggerly, the bad man as he would exist later. Um, you know, he says, standing on the gallows, his head way up high uh, at 12 o'clock, they killed him. Uh, they were all glad to see him die. Uh, between his head being held up high, you know, like, and uh, you see a little bit of the sort of pride or fearlessness or dignity there maybe, um, and then this, they were all glad to see him die. You know, Beck, uh, the musician re-recorded for, I think a Mississippi John Hurt tribute album, a version of that song. And he changed it to, uh, we were all glad to see him die. And I think got a little bit of pushback for that. I think there was a suggestion that the, the, who are the, they, and who are the, we, this is an important thing here. You know, the, the justice system feared a black man, you know, that powerful, um, and, Therefore, Mississippi John Hurt very intentionally said they they killed him. They were all glad to see him die. Interestingly, when he re-recorded it in the 1960s, I, it's just now occurring to me, there's a verse that's not in that 1928 version so that he must have added later, which is, as I'm recalling it, standing on the gallows, Stagley did cuss. The judge said, let's kill him before he kills some of us. That bad man, oh, cruel Staggerly. And that, too, may be a, a kind of incipient, you know, the bad man who strikes fear into the hearts of, uh, you know, of all of the respectable white people who hold the levers of power here, you know, like that. The, the lionization of him, it, yeah, we, we may see the beginnings of it in that, in, in Mississippi John Hurt's various versions across the years. Yeah, I think so. Like, what strikes me, too, is that um, it doesn't have the ambivalence of the original, or the early jail songs yeah, probably should, since yeah. there could be an earlier one like at the end it's not like it's oh i wonder what they'll do right it's it's very part of it might be because it it's not over yet you know like right, when it's right. written but at the same time there isn't this like and we're glad he's going to jail <laughs> right right <laughs> and it's not well, like he went to the gallows either actually now i'm right. thinking about it he died of tuberculosis that's been one of the most interesting aspects of the the legend through the years too is that it it for some reason that was a that was a fictional element that it was important apparently to have added to the legend that he actually be put to death you know go to the gallows and and go to the gallows proudly and fearlessly as he does I think in every version of the song in which he goes to the gallows um and then some extended beyond that of course as it got you know elaborated on as the years went by and people savored self telling different versions of the tale you know he goes to the gallows he's put to death then he goes to hell and confronts the devil and kicks the devil out and takes over running hell himself and to this day Stagley is down there running hell you know that was that was the uh, next layer added to the story as it uh, you know morphed through the years totally yeah i mean it's just so interesting how you know, legends are born from fact and then they, you know, turn into fiction and we forget that they were fact originally. And then, you know, it sort of slides back and it's neat to see it slide back. And actually, you conclude the essay with this like wonderful moment where you listen to John Russell David's tapes of that moment when, yeah. you know, you the precise moment you say when Staggerly stepped from folklore back into fact yeah. So we published it on the website. I thought it would be cool to play it too. Yeah, so, please do. Here it is, um, that precise moment. You know, Nathan Young has been spending a lot of time talking about Stack of Lee. Yeah, I remember Stack of Lee. Yeah. <clears throat> but I wonder if there was ever a person 
His name was. Dr. Lee's name was Lee Shelton. Lee Shelton? Right. I never heard that before. Nathan Young didn't know that. Maybe he didn't. He sounds so smug there at the end. No, he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But I do. He was pleased to have that piece of knowledge, I think. Yeah, so that was Ed McKinney, who was a musician and sort of a historian of St. Louis. I think a historian among other things, because he had experienced so much of St. Louis's history himself. He was, I think, 88. I determined at the time that he was being interviewed there. That was 1973. And this is a pattern that I think you see again and again in, uh, you know, American folklore research that, that the quote unquote discovery of something is actually a researcher finally finds the, um, the elderly African American who remembers it and can tell you about it. Like it has not been a mystery. It hasn't been lost. There's nothing to rediscover because I've known this my entire life. Um, it's just that it hasn't been, you know, written out or published in a, you know, a journal somewhere or something like that. And so I, I kind of wonder if it hadn't even really occurred to Ed McKinney so much to talk about, oh yeah, Stacker Lee was a real guy. His name was Lee Shelton because he knew that. And as far as he knew, a lot of people still knew that. <laughs> I sort of felt like my experience was an illustration of like the power of digitized historic documents like newspapers and things like that and what new things you can learn and reveal with them. And I, I still think that to an extent, but this search also revealed to me, I think the limits of that and how dependent you still are on things like the oral tradition and folk knowledge, you know, in order to put together a complete picture that if you're relying solely on the documents, you're going to get, you know, a, a very, very limited glimpse of the total picture. We have links in the show notes to Eric McHenry's essay, The Baddest Man in Town, as well as his annotations of the oldest known lyrics to the song, printed in the March 14, 1897 edition of the Kansas City Star. I've also compiled a list of some beloved renditions of Stagger Lee, including the Nick Cave version we heard up front, and more on murdered ballads generally. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.